Ezekiel chapter 35 in your Bibles, please. Well, today is Resurrection Sunday. It is a very special memorial for we who are believers because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very cornerstone of the Christian's hope, the very cornerstone of the Christian's expectation. And it is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that the world can find peace with God. Things were not so different back in the days of the prophet Ezekiel. Romans chapter 4 verse 3 and Galatians chapter 3 verse 6 remind us that Old Testament saints were saved in the same way that we are saved. By grace, through faith and the revealed Word of God. As we think of it today, we would say that they had faith in that which was to come. They looked forward in faith and we have faith in that which has already happened. We look backward in faith. For Abraham, he exercised faith in the revealed Word of God in regard to the covenant that God had given to him to bless him and to keep him. In regard to Israel... They placed their faith in the revealed Word of God that brought forth the Mosaic Law. Not that the Law was what saved them, but rather that their faith in the revealed Word of God, which was the Law, brought about their righteousness. For the Christian, we place our faith in the revealed Word of God. We have the complete Word of God, the 66 books of the Scriptures, all focusing on and leading up to The revelation of Jesus Christ. His death, His burial, and His resurrection from the grave. Now by this point in the book of Ezekiel, Israel had not just forsaken the law of Moses and its promises, but they had felt the full effects of the chastening of God through the destruction of Jerusalem. Recall that we are in that portion of Ezekiel now that is after the destruction of Jerusalem. Recall that several sermons ago and several chapters ago, Ezekiel had heard about the destruction of Jerusalem and at that time he was able to speak once again. He was no longer dumb. So, the city had been destroyed. Israel was seeing the fullest manifestations of their rebellion against God. But though God had given His people over to their enemies, He reminds them time and again that He has not forgotten them. And though His people were in the midst of great trial, this trial was a means to an end in order that God might be faithful to His promises. See, there are times in life where God desires to bless us. But He can't because we're getting in His way. Because our actions, because our attitudes, because our rebellion against Him is getting in the way of what He desires to do for us. He wants to do us good, but His goodness is hindered by His justice because we are not doing right. He desires to outpour blessings, but our sin is in the way. Now, the last several weeks of Ezekiel we have been focused in a bit of a different direction. 
God has been speaking out against other nations, nations that have persecuted Israel, nations that rejoiced over Israel's failures, and the pattern we have seen so far is this. We see, first of all, words of judgment for the nation's actions against Israel. We've seen that template time and time again where God first denounces the wicked nation for their attitudes or their actions against His people. He promises that these wicked actions will bring about severe judgment. And He asserts His own preeminence over their proud leaders. We think of the Prince of Tyre. We think of uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt and how these men had exalted themselves above God and how God was, um, through His Word, putting them back in their place, really. Then God tells the nation that Israel will be destroyed. And He always does this. He sends words of hope. He sends words of promise in Israel's restoration and their superiority, their favor before God. God always ends with this hope. These nations would fall and be utterly consumed, but Israel's fall. Israel's fall is simply the prelude to a greater rising again. And we see this in Romans 9-11, through Paul teaching on the Uh, the nation of Israel, and he says that if the fall of Israel redounds into the glory of the Gentiles, how much more will the glory of Israel redound? How much more will the glory of Israel uh, glorify God if the fall of Israel has glorified God so greatly? And what we'll see today is that the promises of Israel culminate in one person. Just as this morning we saw how the goodness of God and the the righteousness of God and and all that that God has promised culminates in His Son, Jesus Christ. We're going to see the same thing this evening. That the culmination of the goodness of God toward His people, Israel, is Christ. The person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. That the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that event which defines both the existence and the purpose of the church, will also one day define the redemption and restoration of God's people, the nation of Israel. So let's look at these two chapters together. Beginning in chapter 35, verse 1, the Scriptures say, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Mount Seir, and prophesy against it. God begins this prophecy in chapter 35 by pointing it toward a place called Seir. Seir was a nation south of Israel that is better known by other names in Scripture. Seir was the mountain, in fact, upon which this nation found its beginnings. But in Scripture, that nation is officially called the nation of Edom. The nation of Edom. Now, Edom was the nation that had arisen out of the brother of Israel, a man named Esau. You perhaps recall the biblical account of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were twins. They had strived even in their mother's womb. And as Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was was dealing with these two children in her womb, she went before the Lord and the Lord said, there's two nations in your womb that are striving together. And one will serve the other And he said specifically that the elder would serve the younger. Well, these two boys are born. Esau was born first. He is the elder. And the younger 
was Jacob. As they grew older, there was a day where Esau was coming in from hunting. He was hungry. And in his desire for food, he willingly sold his birthright to Jacob for a mess of red pottage, the Scriptures tell us. God renamed Jacob Israel, promising to make a great nation out of his children. Following the sale of his birthright, Esau was renamed. Edom, a word meaning red, is a memorial of the red pottage that he had bought with his birthright. And the Scriptures tell us that as these two men eventually parted ways, Esau went to the mount called Seir, which became the land of Edom from which the nation of Edom and the Edomite people were derived. So, Seir is Edom, is Esau. We should always link those names in our mind. When we hear Edom, we should think Esau. We should think um, Seir. When we hear Seir, we should think Edom. We should think Esau. They are the same in the Scriptures. Now, the nation of Edom was a very strong people. A very proud people. They lived south of Israel and they lived in the rocky area south of Israel. They built great cities in these rocks. One of the most famous of these rock cities that the nation of Edom had built was a city called Petra. I don't know if you are familiar with the ruins of Petra, but if you're not and you're curious, I would encourage you to take some time to get online perhaps or to open up an encyclopedia and look at these buildings that were in this city of Petra. What an incredible feat it was for those builders Edom was indeed a strong and a great nation. Now, throughout history, the nation of Edom had always been a thorn in Israel's side. They regularly resisted Israel's efforts and they regularly rejoiced in Israel's destruction. God had prophesied against Edom on several occasions in the Scriptures prior to to Ezekiel's prophecy. Ezekiel's prophecy was right at the time of the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. And yet, prior to this time, there had been several prophecies against this nation. Isaiah had prophesied against Edom. Jeremiah had prophesied against Edom. And particularly, the prophet Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in our Bible. It's certainly the shortest of the prophets. And the entire focus of Obadiah is the nation of Edom and their destruction for their sins against Israel. Now we find ourselves here in the prophecies of Ezekiel again finding uh, words of judgment against this nation. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. Words of judgment against Sayer. And God says this in verse 3, And say unto it, that is this nation, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against thee, and I will stretch out mine hand against thee, and I will make thee most desolate. I will lay thy cities waste, and thou shalt be desolate, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. God begins this prophecy by His promise of judgment. He tells them that He will make them a desolation. Not just 
the cities, but also the people. He would recount more of their judgment in verses 6-9. through Look at it with me. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord, I will prepare unto, uh, thee unto blood, and blood shall pursue thee. Sith thou hast not hated blood, even blood shall pursue thee. Thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it him that passeth out, and him that returneth. And I will fill his mountains with his slain men. In thy hills, and in thy valleys, and in all thy rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. I will make thee perpetual desolations, and thy cities shall not return. And ye shall know that I am the Lord." The blood that Edom exacted against Israel, God says, would fall back upon their own heads. The strong mountain in which Edom lived would be overrun and filled with their own dead men. Difficult language. But we know Ezekiel is filled with that, isn't it? Ezekiel is filled with difficult language, with judgment. Now God's reasons for being so harsh in His judgment. We saw it in verse 5 and it's also given in verse 10. We've already touched on these reasons just briefly. Because God said, Thou hast had a perpetual hatred. Because of the perpetual hatred that Edom has had for the people of Israel. This hatred has overshadowed all of their interactions with Israel. Furthermore, God says, at the time when their iniquity had an end, at the time when, it, when God had brought to an end the iniquity of Israel, they had still been against them. Most likely this was talking about the very end of the siege of Babylon. At the very end of the Babylonian siege, as Babylon finally came into the city, it seems apparent that Edom was a part of that siege squad. That Edom was rejoicing over Israel's fall rejoicing over Israel's destruction. And God said, even after I had brought their iniquities to an end, I had given them the fullest recompense of their evil, you still acted against God's people. In verse 10, God says it as well. Because thou hast said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it. So Edom didn't just rejoice over Israel's destruction, but Edom actually was thinking about and scheming and desiring to take over the land of Israel, to take the wealth of the land of Israel and to make it their own. He says, we will possess it, whereas the Lord was there. The conclusion of God's words against Edom is found in verses 11-15. through God says, Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, I will even do according to thine anger and according to thine envy which thou hast used out of my hatred, out of thy hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I have judged thee. God promises in verse 11 that Edom's anger against Israel will be turned against themselves. Just as God promised that he would turn their blood against themselves, so he said that he would turn their anger against themselves. Literally, that to the degree that they shed the blood of Israel and the degree to which their anger was directed against Israel, God would shed their blood and God would direct His anger against them. He tells them in verse 12 that they have blasphemed God by speaking against Israel. We studied this morning in Sunday school 
the promise that God gave to Abraham that who, whosoever cursed Abraham and Abraham's seed, that being the seed through Isaac and Jacob, would be cursed. And whosoever blessed them would be blessed. So God says, I've heard your blasphemies. You've blasphemed Me as you've spoken against Israel. He says in verse 13, Thus with your mouths you have boasted against Me and have multiplied your words against Me. And He says, I have heard them. So thus saith the Lord God, When the whole earth rejoiceth, I will make thee desolate. As thou didst rejoice in the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so will I do unto thee. Thou shalt be desolate. (coughs) Excuse me. O Mount Seir, and all Idumea, even all, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I got curious as we preached this sermon. Maybe I should have gotten curious before. How many times does that phrase come up? We've probably mentioned it every week since we've begun this series. And they shall know that I am the Lord. God is time and time again declaring signs, declaring wonders, declaring judgments that will validate God's supremacy and God's sovereignty and God's right to rule in the eyes of the people. You know, it comes up a couple of times in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus and the book of Ezekiel are the only two books where this phrase, and they shall know that I am the Lord, comes up. There's other variations in other places, and he shall know that I am the Lord. But this phrase is only found in Exodus and Ezekiel, and it's found in the book of Ezekiel 24 times. And they shall know that I am the Lord. And here we see it again. So God is going to prove His supremacy to them. God shifts gears in verse 36. Remember I told excuse me, in chapter 36. Remember I told you that God never brings a judgment or a proclamation of judgment against a nation without also confirming the blessings upon Israel. So we've seen the proclamation of judgment upon a nation And now it's time for God to turn His eyes toward Israel. That's what it says in verse 1 of 36. Also, thou son of man, prophesy unto the mountains of Israel. And say, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. It's time to discuss deliverance and restoration. Verse 2 says, Thus saith the Lord God, because the enemy hath said against you, Aha! Even the ancient high places are ours in possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord God, because they have made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, that ye might be a possession unto the residue of the heathen, and ye are taken up in the lips of talkers and are an infamy of the people. Therefore ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills and to the rivers and to the valleys and to the desolate wastes and to the cities that are forsaken, which became a prey and derision to the residue of the heathen that are round about. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy have I spoken against the residue of the heathen and against all Idumea, which have appointed my land into their possession with the joy of all their hearts, with despiteful minds to cast it out for a prey. 
Prophesy therefore concerning the land of Israel and say unto the mountains and to the hills and to the rivers and to the valleys, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my fury because ye have borne the shame of the heathen. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, I have lifted up mine hand. Surely the heathen that are round about you, they shall bear their shame. God begins by reassuring Israel in these first seven verses that the nations around them will be judged. That they will suffer the consequences of their wickedness. That they will bear their shame. Just as Israel has suffered the consequences of their wickedness. There's always a temptation as a follower of God to think that the wicked are getting away with their evil, free of consequences. There's always a temptation as, the follower, as a follower of God to, to, to sin and to think that nothing directly has happened because of it, so I must have gotten away with it. But the Scriptures bear out something very different. That we reap what we sow. And that we do face consequences of our sins. Because we do not see the immediate outcome of any one's sin, and we see the suffering of the righteous, we can become discouraged sometimes, can't we? That it seems as though the wicked are prospering in their wickedness, and the righteous are suffering in their righteousness. But God reminds Israel that He sees their sin, the sin of the heathen. He knows the sin of the heathen and He will recompense the heathen for their sin. So He says in verse 8, O mountains of Israel, ye shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit. Words of comfort. Words of hope. We've seen this analogy of the branches and of the fruit so many times in the book of Ezekiel. We see it all throughout Scripture that the healthy person is the person who is growing, who is bearing fruit. That the healthy Christian, that the one who is following God, God describes as one who is prosperous as a tree planted by the rivers of water according to Psalm 1. Or in this particular a book that the plant is shooting forth its branches, is growing toward the sun, is growing great, is growing tall, and is not just being a pretty tree, but is bearing the fruit of righteousness. And God tells Israel through Ezekiel, Ye shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to My people of Israel for they are at hand to come. In verses 9 and 10, He tells the land that it will again be tilled. It will again be planted. That it will again be multiplied. Remember, He's not necessarily speaking to the people as much as He is speaking to the land here. To the mountain of Israel. He says, mountain, let me tell you something. You are going to become prosperous once again. You are going to be tilled. You are going to be plowed. And then he says in verse 10, I will multiply men upon you. And beast, and they shall increase and bear fruit, and I will settle you after your old estates, and will do better unto you than at your beginning. You will be more fruitful, you will be more beautiful than you've ever been before. You will be more fruitful in the end than you ever were. At the beginning. Now you think of the land that Israel went into after the 40 years of wandering. You think of the grapes of Eskel that were brought back 
that were so fruitful that two men had to carry them back to the encampment of Israel. You think of the reply of those twelve spies who came back and said, surely this land is just as wonderful as God promised it would be. Truly it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a fruitful land. And God says, O mountains of Israel, the end will be better than the beginning. The beauty of the land at the end will be more beautiful than it was at the beginning. The land will be more fruitful than ever. The people will be more plenteous than ever. The land of Canaan is still waiting for the fulfillment of these promises. The mountain of Israel is still waiting to become as fruitful and prosperous as it once was. And God's promise here is a promise that is rooted in the promises of the Millennial Kingdom. When God will once again restore the nation of Israel to prosperity and He will rule and reign upon the earth through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in that time that once again the land will be prosperous in a greater way than it was even at the beginning. God continues in chapter 36, verse 14, and He says, Therefore thou shalt devour men no more, neither bereave thy nation any more, saith the Lord God. In verses 12-15, through 15, the land of Israel is described as having been a land characterized by war and destruction. All throughout history, Canaan has been a place of war. Canaan was a place of war in the time of Abraham. You recall the war between the confederate nations where Lot was taken captive as he had lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. You recall as it continues through that land the fighting and the wars of Canaan as Israel repossessed the land. And then the fightings against Moab and against the Philistines and the fightings against the Ammonites and the Amalekites and the Amorites and the Hittites. And then after that, we see the Babylonians come in and conquer the land. And then we see after Israel is back in the land, conflicts against Babylon, Medo-Persia, conflicts against Greece and Rome, conflicts against Syria and Egypt. And they all centered around this small little parcel of land known as Canaan. Then we read in the history books about the Crusades against the Holy Lands. And we read in the history books about the rise of the Arab nations in the Holy Lands. And we read in the newspaper about the wars between Palestine and Israel. And the wars against in Syria and the, the civil wars and the uprisings in Egypt, and we recognize that this land of Canaan has never seen peace. And God says that there's coming a time that this land that devours men will devour men no more. That this land that bereaves or strips or deprives nations of their people, people go there and they die in wars will bereave the nations no more. It's going to become a land of peace, of prosperity, of comfort, and of joy. It's coming one day. hasn't happened yet, but it's coming one day.
In verses 16 through 38, God recounts why this restoration is needed and how this restoration will come about. He begins by reminding them of their rebellion in verses 16 through 20. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore, I pour out my fury upon them for their blood, the blood that they have shed upon the land, and for their idols wherewith they have polluted it. So he recounts again, as we have heard time and time again, the charges against Israel, the pollution of their land, their idolatry, their wickedness, their rebellion, their sin, their murder of their own innocent children to Molech and to Baal. God tells them that that is the reason why they were removed. They were removed for their sin. They were removed for their violence. They were removed for their shedding of innocent blood. They have shamed the name of God through their actions and so the judgment of God rested upon them. But then notice verse 21. But I had pity for my holy name. which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen whither they went. God's recounting His mercy now. See, for the sake of God's own name, He was going to restore the nation. For the sake of God's promises, He was going to restore the nation. For the sake of His own holy name, God would gather the nation back together and make them holy and restore the land and make it better than ever before. And how is it that God would accomplish such a purpose? Well, this is what we see in verses 25 through 32. Look at it with me. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleannesses and I will call the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit tree and the increase of the field that ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and ye shall loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded of your own ways, O house of Israel. God promises them in this passage that He would give them a new heart and a new spirit. This is a promise that Uh, We can find several times in the Old Testament. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 31 and Jeremiah chapter 33. It's found here in Ezekiel 36. And it's found in the New Testament. We'll get there in just a little bit. God promises them a new perspective. God promises them that they will begin to act differently. That they will begin to think differently. That they will change. That God will cause them to obey His judgments. It will be almost as if they had been born a second time. 
because God would change them from the inside out. God says in verse 29, I will save you from all your uncleannesses. See, because we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So God has promised to deliver this nation from all the nations around them. But you know what? They didn't just need deliverance from the nations around them, did they? They needed deliverance from themselves. They needed deliverance from their own sin. They needed deliverance from their own carnality. And in that day, God tells them they will remember their own evil ways and they will loathe themselves and they will mourn for their sin because they will see it as loathsome as God sees it. And so He promises them in verses 33-38 through that in that day there will be peace. There will be prosperity. There will be joy unlike the land has ever known. And in that day, God says, all the world will know that He is the Lord. That Jehovah is God alone. God's solution to the problem of Israel's rebellion is to give them a new heart and a new spirit. If that sounded familiar to you, not just because of Jeremiah 33, it should have. In John chapter 3, Jesus Christ has begun His ministry and a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to Jesus by night and he asked Him how it was that He was able to do the miracles that He performed. And in John chapter 3, verse 3, Nicodemus, or excuse me, Jesus said this, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. God had promised to save Israel from their uncleannesses. God had promised to give them a heart and a new spirit. And what God was telling Israel on that day is that He was going to birth them again. He was going to give them a new heart. He was going to make them a new person. That He would cleanse them from all of their uncleannesses. That He would remove them from the nation. God had promised in the book of Ezekiel, a time when He would make a way for the people to be made new. See, they didn't just need reformation. The nation of Israel didn't just need to have some sort of behavior modification. They needed regeneration. They needed to be given the ability to do what they could not do in and of themselves. And as Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, as He spoke that night, He was answering the how to Ezekiel's what. See, God through Ezekiel told the nation what He was going to do. That He was going to give them a new heart. That He was going to give them a new spirit. That He was going to remove all of their uncleannesses from them. That He was going to... to deliver them, not just from the nations around them, but from their own sin. And now Jesus Christ comes on the scene and Nicodemus comes to Him very early on in His ministry and He says, Jesus, who are You and what are You doing? And Jesus Christ says, Ye must be born again. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to tell you how it is that you can receive that which 
has been a promise to Israel since the days of the prophets. You have been looking for that one that would redeem Israel from their enemies. You have been looking for that one that would redeem Israel from itself. And I am not here simply to tell you what. I'm here to tell you how. Believe on me, for you must be born again. The new heart and the new spirit would come to a man as he accepted the Gospel that Jesus is the Son of God sent from God to save us from our sin. And so today, Resurrection Sunday, this great truth that we have observed throughout the day, this wonderful time of memorial that we carry through the year as we recognize that He is risen and because He is risen, we will rise as well if we are believers. And we look at this as something that was done 2,000 years ago that forever secured our salvation and eternal life. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He died once for all for the sins of the entire world so that all might have the opportunity to accept Christ to be saved. When Jesus rose again from the grave, He rose from the grave once and for all so that all who accept Him might receive eternal life. That thing that we look back upon 2,000 years ago was the thing that Ezekiel was looking forward to. This was the thing that Ezekiel was looking toward. This was the new life. This was the new birth. This was the new heart. This was the new spirit secured through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Now, 2,000 years ago when Christ brought that gift to Israel, they rejected it. When Jesus Christ came saying that He was the one that had the the means by which they could receive a new heart. He was the one that had the means by which they could receive that new spirit. He was the one that could come and wash their uncleannesses away from them. They said, this man speaks from the devil. But there's coming a day when that will change. See, the Scriptures tell us that because of Israel's rejection of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the door was open for Gentiles to come in. And so the last 2,000 years of history have been the age of grace, the age of the church, whereby all men of every tongue and of every nation are called to come into the Kingdom of God by grace through faith in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But there is coming a day as testified of in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, when all Israel shall be saved. But you know, until that day, ladies and gentlemen, we have work to do. To the believer in this room, there's a world out there that's lost. There's a world out there that is wallowing in the mire of their own sin. There's a world out there that is looking for solutions in all the wrong things. They are looking for the satisfaction of all that they are, are longing for in entertainment. They are looking for their satisfaction in spending money. They are looking for their satisfaction in drugs or in alcohol. And they're not finding it. They are looking for the means by which to do right. And they're not finding it. 
And way back in Ezekiel chapter 36, God said there's something coming. There's a way by which you will receive a new heart and a new spirit. And Jesus Christ came onto the scene and He said you must be born again. And we read in the epistles where Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And we have experienced that if we are born again believers in this room this evening. And if you are a believer, you know that. And there's a world that needs to hear what you know. To the unbeliever in this room, I told the believer they've got work to do. To the unbeliever, you don't have any work to do. You have a gift to receive. The work has been done for you already. The new heart and the new spirit have been purchased already by the blood of Jesus Christ. The promise of redemption was sealed the day Jesus raised from the dead. All you must do is receive. The Scriptures tell us, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so as we consider Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 this evening, we see the intersection between that which was and that which is. We are over here 2,000 years after the great event that was the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel was over here several hundred years prior to the death and the burial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But everything that happened prior to Jesus Christ and everything that's happening after Jesus Christ is looking forward and back, respectively, toward that point when Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross of Calvary for our sins. Because He lived, we live too. May God help us as His people as we focus yet and still upon the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for this day and Lord willing for the days following. To remember that the message has always been the same. That salvation has always been the same. That we have been given something so great, so free, And that there's a world out there that needs to hear it too. Let's pray together.